This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog. Welcome to On the Shelf for August 2023. Evidently, the On the Shelf episodes are currently leaning towards new books and interviews with not so much of other types of content. Still on unofficial hiatus from summarizing books and articles for the blog. Still not much in the way of book shopping, at least not books that are relevant to mention here. On the other hand, the interview schedule is looking packed. We have three interviews this month, and I have several more already scheduled for the coming months. Rather than aiming for one interview per show, I figure I'll air them as I record them unless there's a reason to delay for publication schedules. While writing the script for this show, I was reminded that I'd promised to get the updated submission guidelines for next year's fiction series. So that is available on the website now. Link in the show notes, as usual. Every year, I'm delighted to find the selection process getting harder and harder due to the quality of what I receive. But don't let that daunt you. Send me your best, most interesting work, and you'll have a good chance. The new and recent books cover quite a range this month. I'll start with a book that I had originally left off the show because the cover copy was so coy about the content that I had no confidence that it belonged here. But consultation with a reader let me know that Our Hideous Progeny by C.E. McGill from Harper does indeed have a sapphic relationship at its heart, so I've slipped it in a bit belatedly. Mary is the great-niece of Victor Frankenstein. She knows her great-uncle disappeared under mysterious circumstances in the Arctic, but she doesn't know why or how. The 1850s are a time of discovery, and London is ablaze with the latest scientific theories and debates, especially when a spectacular new exhibition of dinosaur sculptures opens at the Crystal Palace. Mary is keen to make her name in this world of science alongside her geologist husband, Henry. But despite her sharp mind and sharper tongue, without wealth and connections, their options are limited. When Mary discovers some old family papers that allude to the shocking truth behind her great-uncle's past, she thinks she may have found the key to securing her and Henry's professional and financial future. Their quest takes them to the wilds of Scotland, to Henry's intriguing but reclusive sister Maisie, and to a deadly chase with a rival who is out to steal their secret. I was commenting in one of this month's interviews that there seems to be something about the Alfred Noyes poem, The Highwayman, that particularly inspires sapphic adaptations. By Moonlight, by Elizabeth Sarai, is a decidedly erotic entry in this highly specialized genre. In her 18 years on Earth, Bess has never traveled more than 20 miles from her Devonshire village. The raven-haired innkeeper's daughter has little time to dream of adventure as she labors from dawn to dusk to keep her abusive father satisfied. Then, at the weekly market in Tavistock town, she meets a handsome dandy who claims her with a single stolen kiss. 
When the gallant gentleman makes a midnight visit to the inn, Bess learns that her new lover is none other than Kit Latour, a notorious French highwayman who has been boldly relieving the local nobility of their valuables. Well aware of the risk she's taking, Bess still offers herself to the seductive outlaw. Even Kit's darkest secrets cannot quench the flames of her love. Another specialized micro-genre, that of queer adaptations of Jane Austen, covers a wide range of approaches. Kate Christie's previous title, Gay Pride and Prejudice, was a bit disappointing for me, as it was created with only minor revisions to the original Austen text. So I rather suspect the same approach has been used for her new book, Emma, The Nature of a Lady, from Second Growth Books. But if that approach suits your tastes, then check it out. What if some among Jane Austen's characters preferred the company of their own sex? In this new retelling of Emma, one of Austen's most entertaining novels, this question once again applies. This time, Christie's rainbow-hued pen takes on the characters and storylines of Emma Woodhouse, Mr. Knightley, and certain other residents of Highbury. Kate Christie's Queering the Canon series advances the proposition that everyone deserves a happy ending, or at least to be included in the Western literary canon. When reading through historical records, every once in a while you stumble across a fleeting reference that suggests a deeper story. Perhaps there is an overtly queer clue. Perhaps it's only a situation in which queer stories could have existed. The Low Road by Catherine Quamby from Unbound Publishing is based on just such a hint. Norfolk, 1813. In the quiet Waveney Valley, the body of a woman, Mary Tyrell, is staked through the heart after her death by suicide. She had been under arrest for the suspected murder of her newborn child. Mary leaves behind a young daughter, Hannah, who is sent away to the refuge for the destitute in London, where she will be trained for a life of domestic service. It is at the refuge that Hannah meets Annie Simpkins, a fellow resident, and together they forge a friendship that deepens into passionate love. But the strength of this bond is put to the test when the girls are caught stealing from the refuge's laundry, and they are sentenced to transportation to Botany Bay, setting them on separate paths that may never cross again. Drawing on real events, The Low Road is a gripping atmospheric tale that brings to life the forgotten voices of the past, convicts, servants, the rural poor, as well as a moving evocation of love that blossomed in the face of prejudice and ill fortune. Eden Hopewell has a book coming out next month, but this month's entry from her is a romantic short story, Love in the Shadows. Love in the Shadows is a captivating tale of forbidden love set in 1877 Philadelphia. When wealthy Emily meets struggling painter Charlotte, they are drawn to each other despite the societal norms of the time. As they navigate their secret relationship, they must battle the shadows of their past and fight to protect the love they share. Will they find a way to overcome the obstacles in their path and build a life together? The randomness of publishing schedules sometimes throws together accidental themes. Over the last few months, we seem to have gotten an unusual number of books set around early psychiatric institutions. These stories tend to be somewhat dark, purely due to the setting. This month, we have Behind the Red Curtain by Eve Morton from JMS Books. 
Cassandra Lightman grew up making trinkets and toys. She was on her way to inventing a flying machine when she was committed to a sanatorium for hysteria. That's where Dr. Timothy Brown found Sandra and saw her promising intelligence. After Sandra shows Dr. Brown how to cure hysteria in women, she begins to work under him in his medical practice. Since Sandra cannot practice medicine and has no support from her family, she must carry on her position in secret. She goes into Dr. Brown's office through the back door, speaking to no one and always covering her face. Sandra soon meets Bedelia Morton, one of her patients behind the red curtain. Bedelia Morton is an upper-class wife with a banker husband and three children of her own. She suffers from insomnia and nightmares, which leads her to seek out Dr. Brown's practice. Though Bedelia is initially skeptical of Sandra's skill, she soon learns to appreciate Sandra's talent and company. When their relationship becomes too close, Sandra is encouraged by Dr. Brown to invent a stand-in for herself. Sandra goes back to her experimental roots and visits her idol inventor, Marlon Manchester. Sandra works many long nights in hopes of creating the first steam-powered vibrator. When Sandra's invention takes off, she is forced to reconsider her role both in and out of the examination room, her future, and who she wants by her side. I always like finding books with less commonly used settings. That was what led me to interview Lee Swanson about her Dangerous Journey Home, No Man is Her Master, number three, from Merchant's Largesse Books. The previous two books in the series detailed how Christina Cole got into her current situation. Posing as her dead brother, Master Sea Merchant Christina Cole is knighted by King Edward II in 1310 for her bravery fighting the Scots. Torn from the arms of the woman she is forbidden to love, Christina leads a perilous voyage north where she confronts the Baltic pirates who killed her father and brother. The various media properties telling the life of Anne Lister focus on the era when she was an established landowner and courting women of her social circles. But Lister's romantic journey starts much earlier, as dramatized in Learned by Heart by Emma Donahue from Little Brown. Drawing on years of investigation and Anne Lister's five-million-word secret journal, Learned by Heart is the long-buried love story of Eliza Rayne, an orphan heiress banished from India to England at age six, and Anne Lister, a brilliant, troublesome tomboy, who meet at the Manor School for Young Ladies in York in 1805, when they are both 14. Emotionally intense, psychologically compelling, and deeply researched, Learned by Heart is an extraordinary work of fiction by one of the world's greatest storytellers. Full of passion and heartbreak, the tangled lives of Anne Lister and Eliza Rain form a love story for the ages. This month, the Other Books of Interest category functions more as I originally intended, with stories that diverge in different ways from the central prototype we aim to cover. The Ghost Ship, Burning Chambers Number 3, by Kate Moss, from Minotaur Books, features a romance between a woman and a character who may be a woman in male disguise, or perhaps is non-binary. It's unclear from how the character is described, and the cover copy is typically coy about it. This is the third book in a family saga series, but it appears that previous books don't have queer content. Piracy, Romance, Revenge. Across the seas of the 17th century, two seafarers are forced to fight for their lives. The sequel to The City of Tears, The Ghost Ship is the third novel in the Joubert Family Chronicles from best-selling author Kate Moss. 
the Barbary Coast, 1621. A mysterious vessel floats silently on the water. It is known only as the Ghost Ship. For months it has hunted pirates to liberate those enslaved by corsairs, manned by a courageous crew of mariners from Italy and France, Holland, and the Canary Islands. But the bravest men on board are not who they seem, and the stakes could not be higher. If arrested, they will be hanged for their crimes. Can they survive the journey and escape their fate? A sweeping and epic love story, ranging from France in 1610 to Amsterdam and the Canary Islands in the 1620s, the ghost ship is a thrilling novel of adventure and buccaneering, love and revenge, stolen fortunes and hidden secrets on the high seas. Sometimes a book will end up in the other books of interest section, because the sapphic characters are not the central protagonists, as is the case for A Lady's Guide to Scandal by Sophie Irwin from Penguin Books. When shy Miss Eliza Balfour married the austere Earl of Somerset, twenty years her senior, it was the match of the season, no matter that he was not the husband Eliza would have chosen. But ten years later, Eliza is widowed, and at eight and twenty years, she is suddenly left titled, rich, and for the first time in her life, utterly in control of her own future. Instead of living out her mourning quietly, Eliza heads to Bath with her cousin, Margaret. After years of living according to everyone else's rules, Eliza has resolved at last to do as she wants. But when the ripples of the dowager Lady Somerset's behavior reach the new Lord Somerset, whom Eliza knew once as a younger woman, Eliza is forced to confront the fact that freedom does not come without consequences, though it also brings unexpected opportunities. And finally, we have a cross-time story where the characters literally cross time, in Pride and Prejudice and Pittsburgh, by Rachel Lippincott from Simon & Schuster Books for Young Readers. What if you found a once-in-a-lifetime love, just not in your lifetime? Audrey Cameron has lost her spark, but after getting dumped by her first love and waitlisted at her dream art school all in one week, she has no intention of putting her heart on the line again to get it back. So when local curmudgeon Mr. Montgomery walks into her family's Pittsburgh convenience store saying he can help her, Audrey doesn't know what she's expecting. But it's definitely not that she'll be transported back to 1812 to become a Regency romance heroine. Lucy Sinclair isn't expecting to find an oddly dressed girl claiming to be from 200 years in the future on her family's estate. But she has to admit it's a welcome distraction from being courted by a man her father expects her to marry, who offers a future she couldn't be less interested in. Not that anyone has cared about what or who she's interested in since her mother died, taking Lucy's spark with her. While the two girls try to understand what's happening and how to send Audrey home, their sparks make a comeback in a most unexpected way, because as they both try over and over to fall for their suitors and the happily ever afters everyone expects of them, they find instead they don't have to try at all to fall for each other. But can a most unexpected love story survive even more impossible circumstances? And what have I been consuming lately? Reviewing my log, I've started a fairly large number of things, but a lot of them are still ongoing in parallel. Here's what I've finished since last month. I listened to The Benevolent Society of Ill-Mannered Ladies by Alison Goodman, which is something between a novel in three acts and a collection of three connected novellas. Two spinster sisters decide to rescue various imperiled women with the aid of a disinherited nobleman-turned-highwayman who, of course, turns out to be the love interest. 
more of a dark thriller than a romantic adventure, which was what I thought I was getting. And the dark parts can be very dark indeed, to the point of unpleasantness. I was far more taken with the audiobook of Celia Bell's The Disenchantment, set in late 17th century Paris amid politics and suspected poisonings in the court. There is a central sapphic relationship, though this isn't a romance novel by genre. There's a lovely author's note at the end talking about the real women who inspired the story. Highly recommended, and I'll promise you that it's not tragic, at least for the women. Changing gears somewhat, I want to give my highest recommendation to the Netflix animated adaptation of the graphic novel Nimona by N.D. Stevenson. It's a lovely, if heartbreaking, story about the struggle to be accepted for who you are and not who other people want you to be, in the guise of an endearing and chaotic monster girl named Nimona. The darker aspects of the show may be a bit intense for preteens, but if you have a teenager working on identity questions, the story may hit home for them. I started reading Eddie Kay's A Lady's Finder, set in the world of 19th century female prize fighters, but it wasn't hitting the spot for me. I guess you can consider the pun intentional. So I set it aside for now. Among the stories I'm still in the middle of is Meredith Rose's Sherlockian story, A Study in Garnet, which I expect to give a strong nod to when I finish it. And speaking of Meredith Rose, she's one of the three authors I'm hosting this month. The other two are Anne-Marie K.D., who gave us last month's fiction episode, and Lee Swanson, whose new book was mentioned previously. First up is Anne-Marie K.D., whose story, To the Fair Muse Who, Loving Me, Imagined More, aired last week. We're joined by the author of last week's fiction episode, Anne-Marie K.D. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Hi, thank you for having me. As I mentioned in the introduction to last week's story, Afro Ben seems to be endlessly fascinating as a fictional subject. What was it that drew you to her story and led you to create fictional adventures for her? For me, it was encountering her poem uh, to the fair Clorinda. And when I first read it, I almost just couldn't believe that it was written in the 17th century. It was just so playful and to me felt very modern when I learned who it was by and how she was not only a poet, but also worked in espionage during the period of the restoration, I was very fascinated and decided that I needed to know more. But yeah, the way that she plays with gender in that poem, it was playful and very honestly sensual at the same time, which I also felt like was something that I typically hadn't thought of when I thought of poetry. Obviously, Shakespeare is very playful in that way, but this seemed more, it wasn't body, I guess I could say. And so that was really interesting to me that it was very beautiful, very feminine, very sensual, but with a wit to it that really attracted me to the poem and made me wonder more about that person. Yeah, I think the the mystery is one of the things that people enjoy writing about because there's so many gaps in Afroben's biography as we know it. So it's really easy to say, well, I could I could insert this adventure here. I could have her do this. I could have her do that. And, and there's no, you know, solidly documented history to contradict it. Yeah, and I think that I also think that it does lend itself to the possibility for investigating ideas around, you know, her I, attraction, her identity, 
I think it, that her writing tends to invite itself into those realms because of the playfulness that she exhibits with ideas of gender, for example. Uh-huh. One thing I noticed while reading, and especially while narrating your story, was that you are in love with chewy, elegant, Baroque language. <laughs> Is that something that's a typical aspect of your writing, or was it specially tailored to represent Afro the poet? I definitely read a lot of contemporary letters. I read her letters as much as I could get my hands on, and prose that she wrote as well. And so that was definitely part of it, to be sure. But I do love fanciful things and flourishes. And I think that trying to get that idea of that inflection and that rhythm that I encountered in the contemporary language, while sort of melding it with my own desire to communicate a image of beauty and yeah i i think also romance which is something that i i really love is romantic language romantic imagery and i think that they in her time period also in sort of um that idea of the pastoral and like romantic comedy was very much in circulation in her time and so i think it was a melding of both of not only my own I tend to say things in ways that maybe aren't succinct. And I, while I appreciate writers like, I guess, you know, the Hemingways of the world who find the most direct way to say something that is just not in my makeup. <laughs> so I love the challenge of trying to at least imbue my writing with a little bit of that tinge, although obviously honoring the realization that I probably was not going to get it right because we don't live in a world that speaks that language any longer or in those ways so honoring that that wasn't going to happen exactly being allowing myself to play with it allowing myself to kind of start percolating in the sources that i was reading and just to see how it might end up reflected on the page was a really fun fun journey so it sounds like you've been diving pretty deep into afrobin research is there uh, more fiction about her in your future? Oh, good question. I, I'm i not certain. I do certainly want to keep reading more. And I feel like the historian, obviously, who is the person I consulted the most was Janet Todd. And I really appreciated the way that she wrote her biography. It was really interesting in that she obviously incorporates a lot of original source material. But she also tells a narrative, like the book is structured as a narrative, which I really appreciated reading and also being who I am, someone with a background in librarianship. I wanted also to like touch the original source material as much as I could. And so I think in terms of how that might manifest later on, now that I've like gone to this place, I think I would like to visit some archives that I, I've traveled to England in the past, but I never have actually done that. I've done, you know, gone to the V&A and that sort of thing. And that's really beautiful. But again, there is that element, as with Todd's biography, of curatorship. And I would love to get closer to original records and look, see what that's like. Uh-huh. Uh, in that hunt, I was greatly aided by finding a copy of this book on eBay, which was very exciting. So what's the title? It's New Light on Afra Bin. It's by W.J. Cameron. And this was published, let's see, in the, oh yeah, 1961 was the date on this. Um, and just is, it does transcribe a lot of the records that still remain from 
her time in Flanders. So that was really exciting. Oh, yeah. Although it, it's not new light anymore at this point. Very <laughs> <laughs> true. I find that with the, the reading and history that I do, I lose track of what's recent and what isn't because I'll be reading something and thinking, well, wait a minute, why is this person not engaging with this other person's ideas? Oh, right, because they hadn't been written yet for another 20 years. And so I, I'm always fascinated by the, the layers of, of historiography and seeing how they feed into each other. Yeah, definitely. The way that these are conversations and she does in her, in Todd's book, she does reference this work by Cameron a lot. And because so much is unknown, there is this back and forth and guessing like that was what was written 50 years ago now, still something that we believe is the truth or is there new light that has come into our, you know, into our realm of awareness. So in her biography as well, she often does mention like Cameron states this, but my personal feeling is. And I think also, you know, we can't talk about women as spies or as intelligentsias in this way without talking about gender and how that comes into play. And I think that's true even as scholarship on these figures becomes more diversified in terms of who is allowed to publish and you know, investigate in these archives and whose work is respected in that way as well. I think there's like layers upon layers in that way. Uh -huh. So Afro Ben is fascinating in her own right, but why did you uh, specifically turn this into a sapphic story? I think a lot about Afro Ben's poetry kind of lends itself to speculation. Obviously, there's no way to know, but the way that she writes from a gender neutral perspective her of her narrator, for example, and the way that she plays with gender in her work definitely was a part of that. But for me, the intriguing idea about creating a story about this period in her life with sapphic themes was the theme of espionage and the theme of like trying to find safe network, being able to seek people out who perhaps were safe contacts, um, knowing how to discern who was and who wasn't someone that you might be able to divulge certain parts of who, you, how you were moving around in the world and why. That I think was a big part of what intrigued me about the possibility of this story. So obviously there are lots of themes about not being able to divulge everything about oneself that are present in stories around espionage that I do feel resonance with as a queer person. I think that- oh. So being a spy as being closeted. Yeah. <laughs> So I always like to end interviews with asking uh, people if there's something that you have read or watched or, or listened to lately that you really enjoyed and want to recommend to the audience. Reading about Afra Ben and reading about that time in history has made me a lot more curious about the restoration in general and about women's role as espionagers. I have been, so I've been starting to read more about that. And one book that I am reading currently that I'm really interested in is the book by Nadine Ackerman. And it is about women spies and women intelligentsias for England um, around the time of the restoration. So that is something that I've been really enjoying, like reading in a more relaxed setting without a deadline attached to it. So that's one, one thing I've been into recently. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast.
Thank you. And thank you for all the work you do. I really enjoy this podcast and I enjoy listening to everyone's uh, work contributing as well. I'm so glad I happened across Meredith Rose's website when looking up information about her book, because it convinced me I wanted to interview her. I think I found a new winning formula for making sure I line up interviews for the show. Rather than trying to schedule things systematically, I reach out impulsively when I spot an author or other figure whose work interests me. I track down the website for Meredith Rose to get a link for her book, A Study in Garnet. And I was so intrigued by her bio that I immediately dropped an email asking if she wanted to come onto the show, as well as picking up a copy of the book. So welcome to the podcast, Meredith. Thank you. The book that caught my eye is a Sherlock Holmes retelling, which appears to be the start of a series. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your Watson and Holmes? Oh, well, my Sherlin and Sean are Victorian ladies. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with this is show that Victorian women weren't always the sheltered, repressed uh, misses that we often think of, especially if you were not part of the upper class. If you were middle class, working class, you didn't necessarily have the luxury of being sheltered. And during especially the late Victorian era, there were a lot of middle class women who got jobs and went to work, uh, lived in their own apartments with other women, lived in boarding houses. They went to tea shops. They went to department stores. And it was really kind of a, a cultural shift. And as it would happen, the Sherlock Holmes series, the original, is set right in the middle of this transition era. And so I thought it would be really fun to make my Sherlin and Sean as close to the original canon as I could. So my goal is to stick very close to canon, but make it women and make it queer. <laughs> uh, that is always an attractive selling point for a book, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, Holmes and Watson are characters that really attract reinterpretations and reframings. And the, the fact that the original stories have been coming out of copyright, uh, no doubt contributes to the popularity currently. But I'm interested in what for you is the attraction that made you want to present your version of these characters. So what is it about Holmes and Watson that is just so intriguing that we want to visit them again and again? Well, I have to say that uh, part of what inspired me to even think about writing this was for a while when the show was out, I was definitely kind of lurking around the edges of the Sherlock, the BBC Sherlock fandom on Tumblr and stuff. And um, it was just uh, the, the group of people that I followed were just really fun. And but several of them really wished that there was there were more adaptations for femlock, the female Sherlock. And I think part of what attracted me to it, I, I was hesitant at first because I've really been concentrating on writing fantasy. And I thought, well, this would be kind of a pivot. But then I was like, not really, because Sherlock's ability to 
deduce and figure things out is almost like a magical superpower. I mean, let's be honest. And so I thought, no, it's, it's, it's not exactly fantasy, but it's fantasy adjacent. And so I think that it, it was close enough, but I think that's part of what intrigued me. But also, I mean, really, I think what draws people back to Holmes and Watson over and over and over is Holmes and Watson, like that relationship. I think there's something about it that's endlessly fascinating. And especially for people in the queer community, I think that, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, I mean, there's, there's been speculation for decades about Canon, Holmes and Watson and what the nature of their relationship was. And I just thought, well, we're, we're gender bending a lot of stories right now. And I think it would be interesting to see what Holmes and Watson would be like if they were queer women. Uh-huh. And, and if I, interpreting the cover copy of the book correctly you're for, you're focusing on watson as your your main character or is it more equal in the book uh it's very equal in the book i decided to follow most of the original canon stories are told from watson's point of view there are a set that is told from holmes's point of view but most of them are watson and so i just decided that i was going to follow that pattern for you know at least the time being and we'll see if i decide to switch that in the future but i would say that the in the books in the original books watson is the narrator but the focus is very much on holmes and you actually, other than the very first book, A Study in Scarlet, you don't really find out a whole lot about who Watson is as a person. And I kind of wanted to change that up a little bit and make make it less like this fawning narrator who is, you know, just elevating Holmes, but instead really focus on who both of these women are and so I've been able to do a lot of development of Watson as a character. And you gave her a very interesting backstory. Yes, yes. Uh, she is from Wales originally, and she is among the first group of women to become doctors in the UK. Mm -hmm. And that was important to me and very exciting as I started doing research because I have seen there's there's a very, very few number of female Sherlock Holmes adaptations already out there, just just a handful. And in one of them, Watson is the wife of a doctor. And I've I've seen fanfic and stuff that has made her a nurse or, or whatever. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that the 1860s to about like through the end of the, the century, really, there was an enormous push for the education of women and women fought really hard in England, in the UK to go to medical school. And there were there was a lot of resistance. There was uh, an actual riot in in Scotland. And so this whole I like I, I didn't know much about medical history when I started this, but as I started researching it, I was like, oh, she could absolutely have been a doctor at this point in time. And that 
to me just made her character even richer than if you know i just made her the wife of a doctor or the you know a nurse or whatever you know just exploring that part of history that i think a lot of people don't know about was really exciting yeah it i am always inspired uh, not always uh, to write things particularly but to imagine stories from the often very ordinary women doing things that fall outside of our stereotypes of history. You know, the the history of women we hear about tends to be so so filtered and flattened. And mm-hmm. and, and you look at, you know, the people who were not necessarily extraordinary in any particular way, but they're just doing fascinating, interesting things. And uh, every time I encounter one of those stories when in my reading, it's like, okay, I want to fictionalize this character. I want to, <laughs> I want to write more about them. Yeah, I have found out so much that I didn't know about women, and I think it's really unfortunate that we don't have this as part of our regular history training. You, you hear about a handful of women that usually are covered in the history books and there's so much more that women have done and accomplished that we just don't know anything about yeah so you're an artist as well as an author but one of the interests that jumped out at me from your website is that like me you are interested in exploring your welsh american ancestry uh would you like to talk about how that contributes to your inspiration uh, of course, Dwin Duliar Kamrag, Dwin Duliar Kamri. Yeah, uh, so what I just said was, uh, of course, I'm crazy about Welsh. I'm crazy about Wales. I have always been fascinated by uh, Wales. My great great grandparents emigrated from there to here. They were coal miners. And um, my family has always been really proud of their Welsh heritage. And my name Meredith is Welsh. And my mom gave that name to me as a recognition of our our Welsh heritage. She was a musician, a pianist. And so she really valued uh, Wales's history of musical achievements and i feel like i got all of wales's uh literary i mean i i i play the piano i sing i i love music but um uh the telling stories has always been my passion but she used to tell me how she had heard a little bit of welsh spoken at some point and she just said it was so beautiful. It was such a beautiful language and she wished that she knew it. And so I grew up just being like, wow, this is great. I want to, I want to know more about Wales. I want to know more about the language. I want to, you know, I want to explore this part. And it wasn't until after my mom passed away, actually, that I got the chance to actually start uh, Welsh classes. And thanks to a guy here in the US who is a Welsh uh, immigrant and he decided to do some online lessons. And I remember the first night that uh, we had our first lesson, 
um, he asked if he could say my name in the Welsh way, which is Meredith. And I said, sure. And so, and he, I don't think he, I don't think I ever told him how much that meant to me, but my mother used to say that she wished that she could remember how to say Meredith in the Welsh way um, because she thought it was so pretty. And so, you know, just months, a couple of months after I lost her to have this opportunity and my teacher say that name in that way, I about burst into tears in the middle of the first lesson. I'm like, oh no, I will scare him. I should not do that. <laughs> but it just, I, I think that because of all of that history, just the Welsh language is incredibly meaningful to me. And I've been able to study it for about 10 years now. It's hard to practice because I don't have a lot of speaking partners here in the US, but it's something that has become very personal to me and I'm just really excited. Yes, my, my own Welsh ancestry is a bit more diluted by time. They <laughs> were around 1700, so, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but yes, I've really enjoyed studying the language, uh, both the modern language and the medieval language, and it uh, feeds into a lot of my fiction. Oh, I'm sure. I look for every opportunity to insert something Welsh into as many of my books as I can. So you also have a YA fantasy series out. Uh, did you want to say something about that? Uh, sure. That is a series I started back when my children were still in uh, middle school and they are now graduated from college. So <laughs> uh, it's one that I, I've been kind of working on for a while. And uh, there will be uh, five books in the series. It's called the Alchemy Empire series. It is about a group of, uh, it, it's set in sort of a steampunk Victorian-esque gas lamp kind of world. And theater in this world is very, important in society, very uh, respected and revered as far as an entertainment or whatever, but the people that they're drawing in to learn how to perform, learn how to act, are mostly street kids or otherwise from relatively poor families. So this is a group of basically theater students or apprentices who are they eventually will get swept up into what amounts to a revolution against uh, the empire. And I was inspired to write it based on my uh, experiences in college theater. Our director was this older guy from, I want to say Latvia. I'm pretty sure he was from Latvia. And I think we we never found out a lot of information about that but i think that uh during the cold war he was did a lot of anti-soviet stuff and basically had to flee to the us and i was always kind of intrigued about all of those rumors and everything and the uh stories that i've read about like um i want to say the velvet revolution in the Czech Republic uh, at the end of the Cold War uh, was largely centered on theaters. They played a big role in that. And I 
you know, I've learned that theater and acting has often had a revolutionary component to it. And so that all of that intrigued me. And so that is sort of the theme that I'm exploring through uh, that series. But I have gotten uh, sidetracked by the the Holmes, the Ladies of Baker Street series. So uh, I am I'm determined to go back and finish the book four and five, but um, it just might be a little bit slower. Uh-huh. Is there anything that you have been reading or watching or listening to lately that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Well, I've got two things. One is uh, super nerdy of me, uh, but I have been enjoying Critical Role uh, the D and D show where they they actually do the live play, and they are on their third campaign right now. And it's just I've been really enjoying the storyline. There is a couple of kind of queer relationships emerging right now, and that makes me feel very happy. And um, yeah, I think that. It's really fun. It's a little bit daunting for people to start out because each episode is like four to four and a half hours long. And they're on like, I think, number 65 right now. So yeah, it's it's kind of one of those things where, but you can also put it on in the background and just kind of half listen to it while you do other things. I just started a book called Our Hideous Progeny by C.E. McGill. And I'm really enjoying that. It's about the, I think it's the great niece. Yeah, great niece of Victor Frankenstein. And at first I was like, oh, I don't I don't know if I'm gonna like this. I'm not really into like Frankenstein stories or whatever. And, but the, the cover is absolutely gorgeous. And so I, I started flipping through and the writing is so beautiful. And the first chapter has this sort of subversive, uh, real subtle humor in it that I was like, okay, I mean, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm buying this book. Okay, fine. <laughs> so I've only started reading it, but I'm really enjoying it so far. Great. So if people wanted to find you online, where should they look? I would really love for you to look at my website, which is Meredith Rose Books. Dot com. That's the best place to find out more about my books, to purchase my books. I have a lovely hardback available of A Study in Garnet that I'm super excited about. And I will try to restrain myself from nerding out about my wonderful uh, print-on-demand printer for that. But uh, check that out. And then I think that if you want to know about, I'm on TikTok and Tumblr and uh, sort of on Facebook and Instagram, even though I don't use those as much. And I have a Discord server. And if you want to find out about any of those, go to meredithrosebooks.com slash links, and you'll get the whole page where you can just press buttons. Okay, I will put a link to that in the show notes. And thank you for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Lee Swanson has the distinction of being the first male author I've interviewed for this podcast. At least, the first author who was male at the time of the interview. 
I've been taking note of Lee Swanson's series, No Man is Her Master, over the past few years because the setting and plot struck me as fresh and different within the context of sapphic historical fiction. So when I reached out to ask about a web link for the most recent volume, Her Dangerous Journey Home, and Lee expressed interest in coming on the show, I immediately took him up on it. So welcome to the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Why don't you give us the background to your series and then tell us a little bit about the latest book? Okay. Well, I made the decision to write historical fiction because I've had a lifelong interest in history, particularly uh, medieval history, European medieval history. And I've lived for about 25 years in Europe and visited many of the sites that uh, that I talk about in my books. So I then said, okay, if I'm going to write medieval history, I need a really good protagonist. But I don't want to write just, you know, kind of a rehash of what's been written before. So I wanted something unique. How about a woman? Well, there's many books written about women, but uh, the problem is the Middle Ages really uh, don't give women much sway. Instead, it, you know, it's as a helpmate for men. Well, you know, then I might as well write about the man. So, okay, if I'm going to do a woman, what should I do? So I made the decision that uh, I would write about a middle-class woman uh, because we've heard of princesses and queens and things like that whose kind of sole purpose is to produce a royal heir. Uh, not too interesting there unless you're going to go into real porn, which I didn't want to do. Um, so... How do I get a middle-class young woman to have an interesting life story? Well, I couldn't. Um, you know, just like with, uh, with the upper-class women, their life was really constrained to being wives and mothers. Uh, of course, they could go into the church, but then... You know, they're a bride of Christ, so in a way, uh, the same thing. So, uh, like I said, I decided to cheat. I decided what I would do would be to take a young woman and have her disguise herself as a man. In, uh, in the series, No Man is Her Master, Christina Cole is the daughter of a... Uh, of a wealthy alderman in Lübeck, Germany. And, you know, she's kind of a headstrong young thing and wants to be her own person. Well, that doesn't go very far with her father, especially when her sister dies and her father uh, decides that she is, that Christina is going to be going to Lübeck to marry the man that her sister was betrothed to the son of, um, of the chief alderman among the Hanseatics in, uh, in London. 
So she uh, is also a realist and decides that, uh, you know, she has no choice and resigns herself to the fact. But on the voyage to London, something extraordinary happens and she has the uh, chance to fulfill all of her dreams, but at the possible uh loss of her family's good name their fortune and even her life so that's kind of where the series begins and uh then uh she in book one makes it to london and establishes herself uh in book two she becomes more uh, in actually kind of involved in uh, English politics. And in book three, uh, her nemesis, uh, Catherine Revel, trick, well, goads her into uh, taking a perilous journey north. And uh, this is to deal with the pirates that attacked her uh, on her initial voyage to London, uh, killing her brother, apparently, and her father as well. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, don't want to give away too much. So if I'm recalling correctly, um, you, you said that Okay, I think you you gave a clue there that you said her brother apparently was killed. Uh, but well, <laughs> and and she took his place, right? Yes, she uh, she's passing herself off under the guise of her brother Frederick. Um, her father, she knows, was killed because kind of died in her arms. Uh, but her brother was on another ship in the uh, convoy, which the pirates took. And so he has disappeared. And you would think, you would have thought that he would have been, uh, or that the pirates would have tried to ransom him, demand ransom. And um, they never did. So the assumption is, since they've heard nothing of him over the years, that uh, he perished in the battle. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm curious because you're you're a historian and uh, your website said that your specialty was studying the German Hansa and the trading uh, community and whatnot. Yes. Um, I know there's a, a a rich tradition of women in gender disguise, um, more in the you know, the, the very later medieval period or the early modern period, were you drawing on any actual, uh, you know, histories of women in gender disguise? Not really. Um, kind of the way I write is I kind of let the story kind of move forward under its course. There really weren't very many during the early medieval period, simply because, you know, it's like a woman on crusade. Well, you know, the people lived in, the men lived in such close quarters and appalling conditions 
you know, when body functions become necessary, I mean, what do you do? Wander off into the desert and, you know, get a Saracen arrow in your, your back or, you know, somebody goes, why is that person deserting or, you know, and soon it's uncovered. And, uh, you know, so the idea of putting Christina as a, a merchant, you know, she has a fairly, well, very luxurious life. So she's able to, you know, kind of disguise the fact that she's a woman fairly easily. But even then, you know, there's times that, uh, you know, it becomes an iffy thing. So did you, when you started the series, did you have a grand plan for the whole thing? I think there's like like five books planned or something. Um, yes, uh, the next book um, after uh, her dangerous journey home deals with kind of the tragedy of Piers Gaveston. And then after that, one word, Bannockburn. <laughs> so she's very involved in uh, British Isles politics then. Yeah, um, kind of in, well, in the first book, uh, um, No Man's Chattel, uh, she's in kind of a rowdy tavern in, uh, in London, well, in Southwark, and uh, all of a sudden she's accosted by a group of toughs who, um, unbeknownst to her, have been hired to do her in in a, a bar fight. Well, as she's kicked through the door and they surround her, all of a sudden someone appears and says, uh-uh-uh, let's not do that, fellas. And that is Piers Gaveston. So they develop uh, kind of a very close relationship. <laughs> yeah, and I know that traditionally Piers Gaveston has been you know, sort of made out to be, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say a villain figure, but, you know, the the favorite who, you know, corrupted politics and got, you know, all the, you know, was, was interested in making a profit off of his friendship with the royalty. And and then, of course, you know, it's it's no spoiler to say he, he was murdered. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but it sounds like you're setting up to be, um, you know, one of the, the good guys, as it were. Yeah, I th I believe in in history that uh, he is overly maligned. I've uh, carried on kind of deep conversations with the Gaveston Society uh, who come to his defense. But uh, yeah, um, you know, it's it's pretty commonly held that he was the lover of Edward II and uh, running Queen Isa Edward's Queen Isabella uh, to the point at the wedding feast, uh, it was Gaveston's banners that were hung with the kings instead of Isabella's. So, you know, can you imagine what kind of a you know, reaction that you'd have to that, that, you know, here it is your wedding and you're being supplanted by another, by a man. But he and Christina carry on 
really an interesting relationship uh, that develops into true friendship over the course of the books. Uh-huh. So any ideas what you'd like to tackle once this series is done? Well, I've actually begun another series, uh, which uh, kind of follows the uh, the life of Isabella de Vesey, which uh, was a, well, uh, the daughter of a minor French noble who was uh, sent to England to marry um, to marry John de Vesey, who was a count. Uh, but he died, and she becomes kind of a real enigma in history. Um, Edward I gave her stewardship of two important castles in the north of England, uh, Scarborough Castle and, um, gosh, and Bamberg Castle, which was unheard of. You know, here's a woman being put in charge of two castles on the Scottish border. And it's like, why did he trust her so much? And there's nothing really written. You know, Edward I didn't do a bi, you know, a uh, biography of himself. You know, I mean, saying this is why I did it. Yeah. So when Edward I died, she became a, a close friend of Isabella, Edward II's uh, queen. And it uh, wasn't until the end where Edward and Isabella and uh, Mortimer, you know, kind of got into the strange triangle of that ended in Edward's death uh, that she, you know, was alienated a bit from the crown, but then she came back. So here's this woman who was one of the most powerful women in England, and nobody could figure can really figure out why. <laughs> well, I so, think I think sometimes you give uh, women's lives a bit short shrift because I mean my because of my interests, I tend to largely study history through women's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think a lot of them have more interesting lives than, than than you might otherwise suspect from the standard histories. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, because there's few actual, you know, Geoffrey of Monmouth doesn't write about women. Chaucer does, but that's, you know, satire. Um, you know, the lives of women aren't really well portrayed in the histories of the times. And most is as afterthoughts, other than, you know, I mean, again, there's the exceptions like uh, Christine de Pizan, who was a political thinker in, uh, in the 13th century, Hildegard von Bingen, uh, who was an abbess of Bingen Abbey, who was absolutely a well-respected composer, author, philosopher of the time, but 
you know, there's just not very many. So I, it's mostly in retrospect. And of course, in retrospect, it's histories written by men. Yeah. So I'd like to ask my guests if there's something that you have read or watched or listened to lately that you'd like to recommend. Okay. Well, one of my favorites uh, that I've read recently is uh, Corley Mooney's uh, The Cloistered Lady. And it's a uh, trilogy. It's the second in a trilogy uh, about Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, but uh, is historical fiction, but extremely well, uh, well written. Corley's in Ireland, and uh, I've carried on a couple of conversations with her to get some ideas. And uh, yeah, but the 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 writing is top notch, and the Ladies Keeper is another in the series as well. But Corley okay. Mooney. I will uh, put a link to those books in the show notes. So if people wanted to find you or your work online, is there a, are you on social media? Is there a website? Um, Yes, there is. It's Lee Swanson author uh, dot M-E or I think dot com works too, but I know the dot M-E works and that's my website. Uh, Also on Facebook um and i wish i could do all the others but there's only so much time i can either write or you know or be on social media and i choose to write okay well i will link your website in the show notes and thank you so much for sharing your time today ah you're most welcome heather I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 